Hello, homies, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangout. This is such a special week this week. We are celebrating the birthday of Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of Homeopathy. And to celebrate that, I have for the first time brought back a guest, Barbara Roberts, all the way from New Zealand. And if you scroll back to episode 14, we've already had a chat with Barbara. And I put the call out there to see if I could find some homeopaths that could really share some information about who Samuel Hahnemann was as a man to help us celebrate his birthday. So Barbara was very brave and put her hand up and said she'll tell us about the love story of Samuel Hahnemann and his second wife, Melanie. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. It was, yeah, so much fun last time. So I'm excited to be back. Well, we had such great feedback from your episode because obviously being a pharmacist and a homeopath as well and teaching at the New Zealand College of Health and Homeopathy is just absolutely amazing. So yeah, I'm going to leave the floor to you and tell us who was Melanie and tell us a bit about Samuel and tell us about how we met. And uh, yeah, you've got the floor. Thank you. So I, just before we start, I want to say that all the information I'm sharing actually comes from the book by Rima Handley, which is called A Homeopathic Love Story. And it's the story of Samuel and Melanie Hahnemann. And I highly recommend it. It's got so much more than I can share with you in this short space of time. So if you're needing a bit of reading, I, I recommend it. It is an amazing story and it was quite a scandal at the time and has been scandalous for a long time. Melanie hasn't had the best kind of reputation, I guess, um, in homeopathic circles. And before I even talk about the two of them together, I want to talk a little bit about Melanie because she was 34 when she met Hahnemann, who was at the time 79. So big age gap, part of the part of the scandal. But she was an amazing woman. She was the Marquisa Marie Melanie Deve, and she was an artist in her own right. She had a great interest in literature and intellect, and she was really interested in medicine. But of course, at the time in the 19th century, women weren't allowed to practice medicine. So despite that, she had in, in lay terms practiced medicine and it even saved a, um, a friend of her father's from dying from opium poisoning when she was 12 because she recognized what it was and the doctor said he was just dying and that was the end. So she was an amazing character. She painted portraits and the genre painting at the time and was generally regarded as quite skilled and successful and, and had in that. But she became unwell. She had some friends who were sick and passed and uh, passed away and she basically became really unwell with grief as the, the causation and was stopped working and was almost unable to do anything. And that was when she came across homeopathy. Um, so homeopathy had been introduced to Paris in the Parisian society by an English homeopath, um, Frederick Harvey Foster Quinn, um, in 1832. And he had treated a cholera outbreak quite successfully. And so that was where sort of homeopathy had kind of started in Paris. And Melanie came across the fourth translation of Hahnemann's Organon, which she read and became sort of enamored with and decided that that's what she needed to do that's what how she needed to return to wellness so she traveled from Paris across countries to Germany she dressed as a young man because traveling alone as a woman at that time was not really the done thing mm. um, and so she went to Curtin where um, in Germany where Hahnemann was living with his daughters um, Louisa and Charlotte and he was 
79, he was sort of not retired, but sort of declining in his practice and just at home and living with his daughters. And these were his twilight years. So, mm. so within three days of their meeting, Hahnemann had proposed to Melanie. What? So, yeah, three days. <laughs> well, I don't know if you know this, but you know, my husband proposed seven days after he met me and we met, we married six weeks later, but yeah, Samuel wow. Hahnemann beat me. But in saying that Samuel Hahnemann and I are both Aries, our birthdays are only six days apart. So maybe it's an Aries thing. <laughs> it is. Although my husband shares a birthday with Samuel Hahnemann oh. and um, we didn't get engaged for like oh. five years. So, <laughs> can't just so three thing. days. That's amazing. Yeah, three days. So then they did have quite a bit of time apart. So Hahnemann's daughters were not particularly happy about this. Now, I, I'm not sure how old they were. I, I even looked to see if I could find their birth dates to find out what age they were because I wonder if even they were older than the Melanie was. Oh, they um, would have been. They probably would have been in their 40s or something. Yeah, know. yeah. So, um, and certainly as older children would have been. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I imagine that was part of it. There's this young, flamboyant artist, beautiful <laughs> Parisian woman who's turned up and suddenly they're engaged. So, And there was a lot of concern about her being a fortune hunter as well. Mm. And yet she was well off in her own right mm. from her um her family and her work as a painter. So that wasn't really a, a concern. She was living in Curtin, but not with him. And there were some letters that survived that showed that they were, you know, showed some of their relationships. Oh. So it was um, quite a thing. And they eventually married in 1835 and, and moved to Paris. Before they moved um, to Paris, Hahnemann gave away all his fortune and he basically said to his children, this is it, I'm dividing my property among you now and that's the end of it. That, therefore, Melanie's not going to inherit this stuff because that's yours and they, they left and, um, and so that when they moved to Paris, they, he didn't take a lot with him. He didn't take money or, or um, property and fortune or stayed with his, um, his family. Wow. Um, so when they arrived in Paris on the 21st of June in 1835, they moved into Melanie's apartment, but they didn't stay there too long. They did move into a bigger house. And all that time before they got married and then afterwards, Melanie had been studying with Hahnemann and learning more and more about homeopathy and becoming a sort of doing a apprenticeship, if you like, so that she could become a homeopath in her own right. Um, so she introduced Samuel to everything. She lived in Paris and they became quite into um, and the, the social scene of the day, would going to the opera and um, all that sort of thing. And, and Samuel actually got on quite well with Melanie's father and they were about the same age. Uh -huh. So, yeah. But they were quite um, well in, um, out in society. Mm. There were a couple of different French homeopathic societies, and so there was a bit of friction between them. But France was very open to homeopathy. They'd gone through the revolution, and this was the outside um, and the decline, and they'd gone through phases of phrenology and mesmerism, which have disappeared, but they were quite big sort of fads of the day. And then homeopathy was seen to be the new fad, and, of course, it's lasted the distance 200 years. Mm. So, um, it's, those other two terms you said, I have not even heard of. Yeah, they're, they're weird. Phrenology is all about feeling the head and like oh. actually putting hands on the skull and using that to tell you about what your personality is like. And mesmerism, I, I think the closest thing to mesmerism for us would be hypnosis. Um, it, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it is different. And I don't know enough about them. I just know yeah. that <laughs> oh, interesting. they've kind of gone and I'm not this stuff yet. Excellent. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, orthodox medicine and particularly the orthodox doctors became quite cross with the homeopaths because they were taking the um, the well-off patients, I guess you could say, mm. you know, because they were moving to a form of medicine that was actually working for them and not mm. harming them further. So it was yeah, controversial. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, uh, when they first moved there, Hahnemann wrote to that you had to be um, registered to practice as mm. a, a doctor. And he was declined the ability to practice initially when they first moved to, to Paris. And it wasn't until later that um, he he got that permission. So I think that was around yeah, August 1835. So several months before he was allowed to practice. Mm. And when he did, they they worked together. And so Melanie did a lot of the, the note taking and Hahnemann would, would sit there and listen and mm. um, and then he would prescribe. And then later on, she would prescribe and he would sort of confirm or mm. um, change things. And she also set up a clinic for the poor. Mm. So they had a sliding scale where the people who were well off paid more and they, they treated a wide range of people. They um the well-off members of society would send their servants to them and things so they, mm. but they did have a sliding scale of payment and then they had a free clinic for the poor and Melanie basically ran the free clinic by herself. Wow. And so they had, yeah, quite a lot of people. And at this time, this is when Hahnemann started changing the way he was doing things. So he had the fifth edition of the Organon. And so for your listeners who are new to homeopathy, the Organon is like the bible if you like of homeopathy Mm. this is where Hahnemann wrote down his aphorisms what he said that we should be doing and of course the highest um, mission of a doctor or homeopath is to return the sick to health or Mm. to cure and he wrote six editions and they changed as as he wrote them he was sharing his knowledge and his experiences and changing how they were doing and things and by the fifth edition, he'd started to use more water dosing and instead of dry doses. And he'd also, by the time we were working with with Melanie in 1835, he was starting to use higher centesimal potencies. So, what you get over the counter in um, pharmacy, certainly in New Zealand, is mostly 30C, and anything higher than that, you see a homeopath. Now, Hahnemann had just started going up to 200C by this point. Mm. These days we go much higher and you get 1M doses, which is 1,000 and and, um, 10M and CM, which is 100,000, so much higher doses. But back then they were potentizing everything by hand. So every single step was a step they had to do by hand. And he was using ones that we wouldn't even think of these days, like in some of his case notes, 190C. So we mostly do 30 and then 200, but he was doing. 190 or 191 or 100 or um and some of that would have been because all of those were done by hand Mm. so by the end oh and what I should say around this time um Hahnemann had written to America to see if he could get Melanie a diploma of homeopathy so she was not able to practice but he said you know she's she's been doing the work and she's done this apprenticeship so he wrote to America and got her a a, a, eventually she was granted a diploma of homeopathy from a um, a medical school in in the states wow Um, but was still not recognised in France and women Mm. were still not recognised as doctors. Mm. So even though she had this qualification, she couldn't use it. Mm. So towards the end of Hahnemann's life, he moved again in the way he was dosing medicine 
to what we call now the LM potencies or the Q potencies, which is one drop of substance in 50,000. So it's a huge dilution as opposed to one in 100 for a centesimal potency mm-hmm. or one in, in 10 for a, a decimal or X potency. And he started using that alongside the, the doses up to 200C um, and he considered that to be a spirit-like a medicinal force. And that's when he wrote his sixth edition of the organon, which is the first one in which he mentions this one in 50,000 dilution. Now, when Hahnemann died, he gave Melanie the responsibility for publishing the sixth edition. And he told her to wait until the time is right, when the world is ready for it. Mm. So that was another part of the scandal and mm. the um, the difficulty that Melanie went through because everyone reviled her for the fact that she was holding on to Hahnemann's stuff, um, Hahnemann's work, whereas she was just doing what he had asked her to do. And eventually it wasn't published until 1921. So he died um, in the um, in eighteen forty four, forty three. I think he was eighty eight when he died. Hey, yeah, uh, it was a few days after his eighty yeah eighty eighth birthday. Mm-hmm. He um, he fell ill. It was bronchitis. Thought it was the annual bronchitis he get got every year in spring, which always responded to bryonia. But he never got well and. Mm-hmm. Eventually, see, this is one thing that you're probably the same, but homeopaths tend to treat themselves. Mm. Um, and only when we can't do it ourselves, we, we ask for help. And eventually he did call in a another doctor to help treat him, but it was too late. He didn't, mm. and he never returned to health. And after 10 weeks of illness, he did pass away on the 2nd of July in 1843. So that destroyed Melanie. Basically, she was desolate. She had um, no ability to function. She had Hahnemann embalmed so she could keep him at home with her. for wow. She kept him for sort of over a week where she just stayed with that body because she could not let him go. And then, of course, she was so out of her mind with grief that she didn't inform people. So the funeral wasn't well attended. And, of course, then people got really upset with Melanie that she hadn't told them and that she was and there was no sort of compassion for the fact that the reason she couldn't let anyone know is because she was absolutely destroyed by this mm. grief and she just couldn't couldn't cope um, and the same with Samuel's family they mm. just didn't have any compassion for his widow and again I think there was probably a lack of understanding that this was a love match just because mm. there was so many years between them they were still in love and so Mm. she was grieving a husband Mm. she loved dearly. So, of course, that was the other thing. Not only did she have his notes and his case books that she did not release and that upset the homeopathic community, but his family thought that he had a great fortune from all his work in Paris and they Mm. went after her to get the money, Mm. which he had said when he split up his assets before he left Germany, anything that he made in France would belong to him and Melanie alone. Mm. But there was not a lot of understanding, not a lot of Mm. compassion. And so she struggled and she ended up moving from house to house and didn't didn't do so well after that. Mm. Made major issues for Melanie, which is Mm. just awful. Mm. (laughs) But after after Hannah passed and when she did manage to come back to herself a little, she continued to practice as a homeopath until she got prosecuted for it Mm. because she was practicing homeopathy 
but she was not a doctor. Mm. Um, and and even though she had this diploma from around 1840 that she'd got from the um Allentown Homeopathic Academy in the States, France prosecuted her for practicing medicine and pharmacy illegally. Mm. She was actually found guilty as well. Wow. But she was fined 100 francs and banned from practicing. And 100 francs was about the cost of uh, the first appointment to go and see a home, um, mm-hmm. go and see Samuel and Melanie. So it wasn't a huge amount. I think you could get an annual subscription to the newspaper for a hundred francs. So okay. perhaps in context, perhaps it was such a low fine because they acknowledged that while Valid. she was technically guilty, there wasn't a reason for it. So there isn't a lot of information. She didn't seem to keep case books as much after that, probably because she'd been found mm. to be practicing illegally. Mm. Um, but there is some evidence that she did continue to practice, mm. but just kept it pretty quiet. And she did really suffer from um, nerves and weakness in the legs and after effects of that grief um, mm. from losing Hahnemann. And then one of the things that did save her, and she even said that it saved her life, um, she took in a young girl who was an acquaintance and she um, adopted her. And that sort of brought her back to life because mm. she had someone else to look look after. Um, and she continued to practice as a charity because she mm. wasn't charging and she was just mm. sharing her information and knowledge and she was allowed to do that. Mm. But we don't have any case notes. Mm. So, so she's busy. officially the first ever female homeopath, right? Absolutely. Wow, incredible. And actually in the end was was granted permission after there was a war between Prussia and France in 1872, she was actually granted permission to practice as a homeopath. So, yeah, first female homeopath and um, practicing medicine, which is Amazing. amazing. And did she ever have children of her own? No, she didn't. So she never married again. Wow. Yeah, and... The other thing, she did um, get in contact with the Bonninghausen family um, ah. in the 50s. So she had, and, and that afforded her some protection from some of the um, malice and the other rest of the homeopathic community, which was good. Mm, amazing. Oh, what a cool story. It's interesting because at college, we obviously learned a little bit about this. And, um, you know, that wasn't the story that I was told. I, I guess it depends who teaches it to you, hey, but we mm. were told, yeah, and Melanie held on to those documents all for herself and she didn't want to release them. And <laughs> but yeah. it's always, I mean, that's that's the thing with history. It all depends on who wrote it as to what angle you're going to be seeing. So the way oh. that you've told it, I much prefer. I yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I was um, lucky to listen to a lecture from um, Denise Stragus, who has mm. been doing a lot of work um Hahnemann's history. And yeah, I mean, she she talked about it, about his work in the LM potencies. And mm. again, that he told Melanie to wait until the time was right. And there is some suggestion that she was concerned that people would think he was loony because yeah. crazy because yeah. um, he was suddenly diluting it into 50,000 mm. instead of one in 100 and one in 100 was a stretch for most people. So that was a big thing that she, she was trying to protect his legacy and it has meant though that homeopathy moved on before in between the the publishing of the fifth and the sixth mm. um, editions. So we now have things that Hahnemann never dreamed of. We, we're using 1M and 10M and 50M mm. and 
100 M doses, which were never, never a thing when, when Hahnemann was using homeopathy. Yes, um, but easier when you've got a machine that can help you succuss the remedies, hey? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I can't imagine going up to 200 by hand <laughs> remedy is, would be enough. And, and I guess when he's using 190 um, C potency, I, I found that really interesting, but you're doing it by hand. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other thing with the way that we were kind of taught it, you know, over a decade ago was, you know, she held on to this information and that meant that homeopaths never really got into the allium potencies because by that stage, the C potency, that's the centesimal potencies had been established and ingrained so much. And that's a two element is true because I think most homeopaths, like there's, there's not that many homeopaths that use the allium or the Q potencies. But then the flip side of that is, like you said, it would have been probably too far a stretch of the imagination for homeopaths 200 years ago to say, you want us to add 49,999 drops of water to this one drop of mother tincture. And that might have completely you know, it might have been the end of homeopathy because people will, would have gone, okay, this is getting too crazy now. We're stepping away from this. So, yes. yeah, this, yeah, you can definitely see Absolutely. how it's played out. Yeah. yeah, and even though it was first published in 1921, I don't think it was until the 1950s that there was a different translation did, mm. which then I think the, the changes had just sort of slipped past everyone in, that, um, in those 30 yeah. years. And some of that also, you know, again, context, there was a world war World War One and the um, nineteen eighteen. So um, and then the big flu epidemics. That nineteen twenty one one. People were probably not in the right space to again receive that information. Absolutely. And it wasn't until after World War Two, we're talking about the nineteen fifties, when the sixth edition was translated again, and there was more context given and more understanding. And that's probably where the alien potency started for everybody else. And yeah, that's true. I, I don't think for myself, I certainly learned about them in college, but mm. I haven't really ever applied it and never, but, but I grew up using 30C potency. Mm. And so you use what you're familiar with. Again, like even when I started my practice as a homeopath, I used 30C potencies way more often than anything else. And it's mm. as I have sort of evolved that I've started to use higher potencies more mm. and be more comfortable with using those higher potencies. Mm. So there's a lot of, lot of that going on as well. Mm. Is there anything that else that you want to share with us about Samuel or uh, Melanie? I think that covers, like I said, I'm certainly a huge admirer of Melanie after this mm. book. And I think it was a big thing for her just to, you know, even to marry him. It took a lot of confidence and a lot of strength of character. And for Samuel, I mean, having that love at the end of his life, how magic. Amazing. And from memory, I can't remember now, but Melanie herself lived into her 80s, if I'm not if I'm not wrong. Yeah, she she did. She um so I think it was she was in her 70s when she finally um was recognized as a homeopath and able to practice. And she died in um 1878, so 78, yeah, nearly 80. Yeah. Yeah, and amazing, which I think is pretty good for those days if you're talking, you know, sort of mid-1800s then. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, Hahnemann living to 88 is amazing. Um, yeah, I always think he did something right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Incredible. 
Well, Barbara, it was so lovely to have you on today and you've given me warm fuzzies and I definitely am going to get a copy of that book. I'll make sure I put it in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for sharing this with us for Homeopathy Awareness Week. Oh, you're welcome. I think it's um, this week's a really great time for everybody just to talk about homeopathy and what their experience is and how it's mm. helped them because as much as Hahnemann and homeopaths do great works, it's the grassroots, it's the individuals using it, which is what has kept homeopathy going for 200 years. And so the more we talk about that, the better. You couldn't say anything more true. That is so right because if we don't have the grassroots movement of people demanding homeopathy and using it for themselves, then none of us would be here to do what we're doing. So yeah, big shout out to all the home users of homeopathy. Please keep using it. Please keep telling your friends. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing this information with us, Barbara. It was lovely. Thank you for having me. (laughs) See you. Bye.